Turn to Revelation chapter 1, if you would. That's where we will start, Revelation chapter 1. Here's the key concept today. Jesus wins, and so do we. I imagine there's been more History Channel specials on the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible, which is somewhat ironic because I believe that most of Revelation has to do with the future, not the past. But people speculate about the future of all kinds of theories, but what God wants us to know about the future is given to us in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a translation. The word is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. And in English, the word apocalypse has come to be used as synonymous with tragedy or disaster. But the Greek word apocalypse does not mean tragedy or disaster. It means unveiling or uncovering. Revelation is an unveiling of what is hidden. And what is hidden that is uncovered in this book is what will be going on in heaven as well as what will be going on on earth in the future. Now, it's been said that the book of Revelation divides the Christian church up into two camps. One camp can't get into the book. It seems too difficult, too hard to understand, and a little bit scary, so they leave it alone. The other camp is people who can't get out of the book. All they do is theorize about all the symbolism that they see there. But what we need is a careful understanding and a balanced understanding of the book of Revelation. I want you to know that I interpret the book of Revelation from the point of view of a futurist. What that means is that I see the book of Revelation divided into two sections. The first section is where John is addressing the churches that he knows and loves in the nation that we now call Turkey. And the second section is a vision that God has given that portray the events of the future, particularly the events about Jesus' second coming. And I think Jesus himself shows us that this book is divided into two sections in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus is speaking there, look there with me, and he gives John this command. He says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. You see the two sections there, what is now and what will take place later. That's exactly the way the book unfolds. The first section in chapters 2 and 3 tells us uh, about seven churches that are churches that literally exist during, during John's lifetime, and then from chapters Four to the end of the book, we have the vision of what will take place later. And this is what is revealed regarding what will take place later. We see the eternal glory and the majesty of God. We see the ultimate doom of Satan and his evil forces. We see the power that the believer has to stand firm even in the face of persecution. We see the final reclaiming by the Creator of His possession, the creation, and He owns all that is. We see Him set right the creation for all eternity. That's the big picture of the book of Revelation. But it starts with a treatment of the things that are in John's day. And so chapters 2 and 3 are addressed to the churches of the first century. All of the churches existing there uh, exist within a 50-square-mile radius of the city of Ephesus. And all of them, uh, uh, all these churches were established during the mid-50s when Paul was preaching and teaching in the city of Ephesus, and those who came to Christ fanned out from that city and started churches wherever they go. Well, now it's approximately A.D. 93. John the Apostle is exiled to an island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And all of this is part of the persecution under the Roman Empire, Domi uh, Emperor Domitian. 
John was the leader of the Ephesian church at that time. He's also an elderly man. He's also well-respected by all the Christians as having been with Christ. And rather than kill John as a part of that persecution, they exile him to the island. And the thought is this. What possible harm could this old man cause on the island all by himself? Little did they know that God had a plan, that God was working, that he had not lost control of the situation. And when John was there on the island of Patmos, totally away from other distractions, God gave him a vision. And the first was a vision of Jesus himself. And Jesus comes to him. John is so overwhelmed at the sight that he falls dead at his feet. But Jesus rouses him to consciousness and gives him this command. Look back in chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says this, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what is to take place later. And like I said, the what is now section is chapters 2 and 3 where he gives messages to the churches. Each of these churches is a real church, but they are also symbolic. They're symbolic of all the issues that churches will need to struggle with over the centuries of following Christ. And I'm not going to go into the details of the churches, but I'm going to label each one of them so that you can know the issue that they struggle with. So first there's the church in Ephesus, which will label the distracted church. They need to return to their first love. Then there's the church in Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. They're, they're serving Jesus with no res reservations, with no regrets, and to them the message is, be faithful unto death and you will get the crown of life. Then there is the Pergamum church, which is the compromising church. They need to resist the pressure to conform to the world. Thyatira is the promising church that is being led astray by an evil leader, a woman that John calls Jezebel. As you move into chapter 3, you see the church in Sardis addressed. That is the dead church. They need to wake up to a vibrant faith once again. Then in Philadelphia, the faithful church that will be vindicated in the last day. And finally, Laodicea. In that church, we see a lukewarm, wishy-washy body. And it is to this lukewarm church that the famous verse, chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus gives this message. Read it with me. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Laodicea is reminded what we need to know and that the Christian life is a series of opening doors for Jesus to enter more fully, to become more central in your life. A series of further entrances. He says to the Laodicean church, open the doors of your heart and your life to me. And as we enter chapter 4, we shift focus from the things that are to the things that will be, that are to come. Chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation are a prologue, so to speak, of the details that are going to be described in the rest of the book. Chapters 4 and 5 introduce to us the fact that John is having a vision. And in this vision, he is in the throne room of heaven. And in the throne room of heaven, in chapter 4, he sees... 24 elders, which symbolize the followers of Jesus Christ. He sees the Holy Spirit symbolized in the seven lampstands. He sees four living creatures that are described very much the way that Ezekiel in his book describes the cherubim. He sees a scroll that needs to be opened because the contents of this scroll, as it is opened, will reveal the future. 
and he sees a lamb who is the one who is able to open the scroll. Go to chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, circled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This lamb has seven horns. This lamb is not a cuddly, white, fluffy little lamb. This lamb is bloodied. It looks as if it has been slain, but it is living again. This lamb is Jesus. And he has the power to unseal the scroll that begins the countdown of the future. And so chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 19, 21, uh, describe the events that take place in the period that we call the tribulation. And these events, the chronology of these events, are revealed to us in a series of sevens. The first seven is seven seals that that seal this scroll shut that are opened. And as each seal opens, the chronology of the future begins to unfold. So just follow along in chapter 6. I'm going to just describe them to you. The first seal introduces the Antichrist that will delude the earth. The second seal brings war in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. The third seal brings famine. The fourth seal brings death. The fifth seal brings the cry of the martyrs who are pleading for vindication. The sixth seal brings cosmic upheavals. The moon turns to blood. Stars fall from the sky. And then in between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, a pause occurs. And a question is is asked, and the question is in chapter 6, verse 17. It says, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The question is, is anybody going to be able to withstand and live through the events that the chronology is describing? And the answer is given to us in a first parenthetical section starting in chapter 7. What you need to understand when you read the book of Revelation is the chronology unfolds as the series of sevens are given. But in between the series of sevens, we're given a parenthesis that takes us out of the chronology of the book to explain some of the questions that come up as you read the book. And so chapter 7 takes us out of the chronology. It explains who is it that's going to be able to survive in the details of the destruction that's coming. Read chapter 7, verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Part of the program for the future is that the events of the tribulation will shake the Jewish people out of their slumber, and they will turn to Jesus as their Messiah in large numbers. But not only the Jewish people, but many people from all kinds of nationalities will turn to Jesus. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All sorts of people are able to endure, but only as they turn to Jesus. And then as we start chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened And it brings silence in the courts of heaven. It is a silence of anticipation because that seventh seal introduces the next group of seven, which is the seven trumpet blasts. 
and those trumpets bring the chronology uh, of the earth forward. The first four of those trumpets are very much like what happens in the, in the opening of the seals with the disasters and that kind of thing. But look at trumpet number five in chapter nine, verse one. Trumpet number five, chapter nine, verse one, it says, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth that were given power like scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any tree or plant, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. What John is seeing there is the invisible reality of Satan's motives. Satan is that star that has fallen to the earth. And we see Satan's intentions for those who are his followers in those details. Satan does not intend his followers to have joy and peace and happiness. Satan gives permission for his demons, pictured as those locusts who act like scorpions, he gives permission for his demons to destroy his own people, those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. In fact, in verse 11, Satan is identified with these names, Abaddon and Apollyon, which in Hebrew and Greek mean destroyer or destruction. Satan is a destroyer, and he brings desolation to those who are his. The sixth trumpet sounds in chapter 9, verse 13. It releases more destruction on the massive scale, and then, just like there was at the seals, in between number 6 and number 7, there is an interlude. There is a pause in the chronology, and, John, and we see some explanation of what's happening in the life of the apostle John. John, in chapter 10, verse 9, is given a book to eat. It is this book of Revelation, and he's, the revelation he's being shown. In other words, God is saying, John, this has to be a part of you before you can share it with others. You have to take it into yourself first. And then as we go to chapter 11, John is given the task to measure the temple. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. You see, what we need to understand is that by this time in the tribulation period, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be leading the world in an apostate religion that will be centered in a rebuilt temple. And as John is given the measuring rod to measure this temple, the message is this from God. I lay claim to this temple. I will be worshipped in this temple once again. This temple is mine. That is symbolized in the measuring. And then in chapter 11, we're told that God raises up two witnesses who will prophesy for him and preach for him in the city of Jerusalem, but those witnesses are martyred for their ministry. But God in his power raised them to life and brings them to glory. And after this explanation in this interlude, in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh trumpet sounds. And once again, the seventh of the series is the introduction for the next series. So the seventh trumpet sounds, and it introduces the seven bowl judgments that are poured out on the earth. Interestingly enough, we don't get to those bowl judgments until chapter 16. In between, where we are in chapter 11 and chapter 16, is a parenthesis again where John gives us a recap of cosmic history. 
It shows us uh, what has happened that has brought about this tribulation that's going on. And so just glance through the chapters with me. In chapter 12, verse 1, a woman is mentioned. The woman represents Israel. The woman has a son. The son represents Jesus Christ. The son is chased by a dragon. The dragon represents the devil. And the summary of Satan's career over history is given to us in chapter 12, verses 13 and 17. So go ahead and look there. Chapter 12, verse 13 says, When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. As we go into chapter 13, we are introduced to the major players on the evil side who bring about the details of the tribulation. They are called the beast. There's two beasts. There's the beast of the sea and a lesser beast, the beast of the land. You need to recognize that in ancient literature, the sea was the place of the greater evil. Things from the sea were more evil, more scary. So the beast of the sea is the Antichrist. The beast of the land is the false prophet who creates the apostate religion. And together they run a government system that the book of Revelation labels Babylon. Okay? Chapter 14, we're still in the uh, interlude period here. And it answers the question, okay, well, what finally happens to the 144,000 and those who were the followers of God? And what finally happens to the followers of the beast? Chapter 14 is a look beyond the chronology, a beyond the tribulation period. And there we look to a time of peace where the 144,000 symbolize all those who are living in peace and harmony and salvation. But to gain that peace and harmony, the system of the beast, Babylon, must fall. Look at chapter 14, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And so it symbolizes the falling of the beast system. Chapter 15, we're still in the interlude here. We're transported to the throne room of heaven. We see those who have survived worshiping the Lord uh, in, in the throne room of heaven. And chapter 16, finally we arrive back at the chronology of the tribulation as the bold judgments are poured out. And the bold judgments uh, represent this, this final section of the events of the tribulation. And things move quickly in the bold judgment. They produce all kinds of problems. Disease, putrefied water, darkness, drought, earthquake. In chapter 16, verse 16, we see that as a part of this chronology, the armies line up. In fact, go there. It says, Then they gathered the kings together at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And it's, the world is readied for the final battle. Now, you would think that all of these tragedies are causing people to come to the Lord and, and to, to seek forgiveness and repentance. But look with me in chapter 16, verse 21. It says, From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Instead of turning to God, their sufferings only caused them to curse Him more. We leave the action sequence of the tribulation in chapters 17 and 18, and in, those, in this interlude, John gives the reader the assurance that all of this will turn out God's way. 
Babylon and the beast and his governing system will be destroyed, as will the harlot, which is the false religion of the false prophet. Please note the comparison. False religion is called the harlot. The true followers of Jesus Christ are called what? The bride, the bride of Christ. The contrast is between the harlot and the bride, and the harlot is destroyed. And when we get to chapter 19, uh, uh, the chronology of the future moves forward again, and Christ comes with his armies. So chapter 19, verse 11, read with me. He says, And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. He comes with the armies of heaven. Skip ahead to verse 19. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. The location that they've gathered in was given back in chapter 16. The location is Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo. Verse 20. But the beast was captured. With him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. That is the Bible's description of what you call the Battle of Armageddon. It is not much of a battle. Jesus and his armies, his armies don't really need to be there. They're not really fighting on Jesus' behalf. The armies are just the witness of what Christ does. And what Christ does is he's, he eliminates the enemy with what? The sword of his mouth. What does that mean? He speaks. It's over. That's all he has to do. He just speaks. What we call the Battle of Armageddon takes place. And so in chapter 20, we see Satan imprisoned for a thousand years. Now, some people take that thousand years to be a figurative number of a really long time. Others people take it literally a thousand years. It doesn't really matter. After that time, however, uh, that time being when Jesus is ruling on the face of the earth, his kingdom is established on the earth, Satan, after that thousand years, is released. And look at chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle in number. They are like the sand in the seashore. Once again, we see Satan able to amass an army of followers even after the 1,000 years of Christ's reign. It's amazing to imagine, but this is what you need to understand. Sin is not a function of human circumstance. Sin is not caused by economic conditions or lack of education. The first sin was committed in paradise. And the, these followers now amass themselves around Satan are committed after a thousand years of Christ's direct rule because of the human heart. But finally, Satan, as well as those who follow him, are dealt with, they are judged, and John says they're, they're thrown into what he calls the, fiery lake, the, the lake of fire in chapter 20. And this allows now, finally, for the last act of history, the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is the new heavens and the new earth. Think of it as a combined realm. Heaven and earth are now one, experiencing the direct presence of God himself and we able to live in his presence both in heaven and on earth. And did you catch? There is no longer any sea. See, in ancient thought, the sea is that place of fearfulness and fright and evil uh, from which bad things come. No longer there. So the book of Revelation is a book that carries with it a promise and a warning. The promise is blessing in chapter 1, verse 3. But there's a warning here in chapter 22. Look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and the holy city which described in this book. God intends us to understand what Revelation is telling us, but He knows that we are frail, and He recognizes that we would tend to uh, misuse the symbolism here. He says, don't do that, for this is the direction I have for the future. And so as we step away from the book of Revelation, here's a few points to ponder, just to remember. Number one, Satan cannot thwart the program of God. He cannot, on the cross, he cannot For an old elderly gentleman exiled to an island called Patmos, he cannot today and he cannot in your life. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Nothing can stand in the way of the plan of God. Secondly, there is a master plan and it's moving toward a destination. History is not a giant cycle going round and round. It is all moving somewhere and God knows where. He's bringing it forward. And thirdly, you are immortal. You will live forever if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I remind you often, but we must know, this is the shortest part of your existence. Be ready to live forever in the presence of your God. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said this, Nature is mortal. You will outlive her. And so, let's finish just by reading together in chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end.